Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. We are pumped up about today's guest. Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm so excited. I know. I feel like I'm meeting a celebrity, but, but I feel like I, <laughs> I think that all the time, but I really mean it this time. <laughs> um, today, we have Jared Miracle, previously Chief Academic Officer in Jackson-Madison County Schools. Um, he is currently consulting for high-quality curriculum implementation, so scoop up his new services. Um, <laughs> Jared, welcome to the podcast. Hey, guys. It's good to be with you today. Hello. Oh my gosh, we are so excited um, that you agreed to chat with us. <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about about yourself, about your background. Like, um, were you a teacher? Like, how did you get to where you are sitting today uh, in your lovely home office that we can see behind you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I, I started as a middle school social studies teacher, um, which I mean, right from the get go, I think gave me kind of a unique lens into the importance of knowledge building and some of the things I'm sure we'll talk mm-hmm. about with high quality curriculum. So did that for a few years. I was a middle and high school administrator, uh, worked in uh, some district office roles, uh, you know, just lots of fun things along the way. And then I think one of the real um, big moments in my career was helping to start Instruction Partners, which is a nonprofit based in Nashville that consults with districts on materials implementation and that was just really formative for me in, in terms of tuning into this conversation and getting to see what folks were struggling with. So had the opportunity to put a lot of that knowledge into action as CAO in Jackson, Tennessee. And then, yeah, like you said, now I'm trying to branch out and, and help others, you know, along that path and just do what's right for kids. So that's, that's how I got here. That's great. Can you talk to us a little bit about when you were CAO in Jackson, um, how you ended up shifting to high quality curriculum? What curriculum did you guys end up choosing? And what was the biggest challenge in shifting and changing? Yeah. So when I started as CAO in Jackson, they weren't using any uh, high quality materials uh, to use some ed reports lingo. They were using all red, all red programs. Mm-hmm. And so we just immediately put that in front of principals uh, to let them know what was going on. It was almost like everyone in Jackson was grappling, trying to figure out why the test scores were stagnant and moving in the wrong direction. And so between a combination of that and doing some classroom walks with the instructional practice guide from student achievement partners it was pretty easy to diagnose. I mean, I think we had like 12% of classrooms that were using things that were aligned to the standards. So, you know, sometimes, you know, one plus one is two and it's pretty easy to see. And so we were able to, to kind of get going, um, you know, pretty quickly. And that was pretty much the blueprint for what we did at instruction partners as well. We would go in and do learning walks and collect, you know, some qualitative data and then, quantify that qualitative data with the instructional practice guide and come up with an action plan. So through, you know, pretty much a year long process, we wound up piloting and then adopting core knowledge, language arts, uh, EL education, and then the LearnZillion guidebooks for 
the middle and high school grades. So we had three different high quality curricula being used, but it was used consistently across the same grade bands. I'm interested to know a little bit about how y'all rolled that out. Like, what did it look like and feel like? Uh, Because that's really, truly one of the reasons why we started this podcast, right? Because there was so much change um, and we just wanted to elevate all the good stuff that was happening, but also talk some real talk about, you know, some things that are are going on. And I know we'll get to that in in your article that we're going to chat about in just a moment. But um, in your experience, as you were rolling out that high quality curriculum, like tell us a little bit about um, just what people were saying, what folks were doing, what you were seeing once you got past that choice. Sure. Um, We had a great group of principals that immediately latched on to that message. And, And I think what was really important for our implementation, we framed everything around Richard Elmore's instructional core uh, which Elmore says, you've got to have the right content, you've got to build teacher skill, and you've got to engage students. And so everything operated through that framework. And the promise we made to our leaders up front was, we're only going to talk to you about this. Like We're not going to change initiatives every year. Uh, we're not going to surprise you with new bright, shiny objects. Like Everything is going to come back to this instructional core, strong materials, strong teacher skill, and engage students. It just so happens that if you implement high quality materials well, you check all of those boxes and you lift all of those at the same time. And so our principals got on board very quickly. Our teachers were also kind of fatigued with like new things, like new administrations coming in, asking them to do different things. So we made the same promise to them and said, you know, for six months, there's going to be this trial period where you guys get to try these materials out and then tell us what fits your classrooms the best. And then we'll move forward. So bear with us for this six months while this change is happening. And then just know you're going to be able to lean into it after that uh, and really trust what's going on. So we gave them, you know, a pilot period, we collected survey feedback And then like the moment that we saw which way the wind was blowing in terms of what materials they were leaning towards, we identified a smaller group of teachers who could go ahead and fully implement those to help us think through what the rest of the teachers were going to need when they did a full implementation district-wide the following school year. So we kind of had that accelerated group that was helping us troubleshoot, uh, you know, what the other thousand teachers were going to be doing. Uh, at the start of the next school year. So, and I'm sorry to the listening audience, audience, they can't see all my hand motions. That's just how I talk. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, sorry about that. No, that's okay. <laughs> I have Did to say, have- <laughs> I was going to say, we've heard from several people now about having this pilot. So I just like, if there's anyone listening that's thinking about implementing high quality curriculum, I just feel like that's a really good idea. Yeah. Um, because well, like you just said, you know, you learn from their mistakes and yeah. Um, and you get the buy-in. Like I keep the whole time you're talking and, and gesturing, I kept thinking, buy-in, buy-in. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I imagine that that helped a bit. Did it? Sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, we, Jackson serves a very high uh, population of economically disadvantaged students. And so that brings a certain level of challenge and things that you have to deal with as a teacher in terms of meeting kids needs. And so one of the things we communicated was if we can take off your plate determining what to teach 
and let you focus on how to teach it, uh, then that just lets you focus more on the art of your craft rather than the science of writing a curriculum, which most teachers just quite frankly, aren't trained to do. It's not their fault that they can't do it well. Or have the time to. to. (laughs) That's a great point. (laughs) I think we talked about that a lot in, uh, in our episodes as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We've all been there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Did you, did you get any uh, pushback? Oh, for sure. No, I, I, I was a new face, you know, and I actually attended school in Jackson. Uh, so I was coming back as the CAO of this district that I went from kindergarten to 12th grade. I still had some of the same teachers there, actually. My first grade yeah. teacher still teaches. Oh, my wow. gosh. <laughs> yeah, talk about That's putting, amazing. Yeah, talk about putting you in your place. Like when you're like suited and booted, shirt and tie, and you get your uh, cheek pinched on the first day of school. It's like, I don't <laughs> That is hilarious. But yeah, I bet she was so proud to have been your teacher. For sure, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it was fun. Um, but – yeah, there was pushback. I mean, I remember vividly teachers coming to me as we went to schools because we made it a real priority to be in schools to shoulder to shoulder with principals and teachers while this was going on. I think one of the worst things you can do as a district leader is sort of dictate from on high, like what's going to happen, then not actually be in the trenches with the people that are doing it. Like you have to be there and they have to see you shoulder to shoulder, but you've got to stand there and take it. I mean, I remember teachers just like being right up close, like, you know, you're not working with my kids. You don't know, like, if this is going to work. And I'm like, I hear you, like, you are a hundred percent right. I don't know your children the way you know them. And that's actually what gives me confidence that this is going to work out. Uh, Like you're going to take these high quality materials and you're going to internalize them and do the lesson study and then be able to teach it more effectively to your students than I could ever dream of doing. So, you know, we have to sort of meet in the middle and, you know, some of those same teachers who had the strongest reactions were the ones who would come up 12 months, 18 months later, like, you know what, like it was hard, but you were right. Like this is working out and I can see the benefit for my kids. So that's very gratifying and, you know, makes the hard work worth it. Sure. Um, and I think that's actually like similar to where we are in Baltimore right now. And well, I'll just selfishly shift gears to, <laughs> to what I wanted to talk to you about today. Sure. Um, because I think we're, you know, we're going into our third year of implementation. And I think we had that same initial, like, I mean, our first year, there was a lot of hesitation, pushback, like at, for all the reasons um, and totally understandable. Yeah. That's, that's where teachers were. And I think we're in a more settled place now. I think, you know, one, like they're not seeing that we got rid of it after the first year, like it's, it's sticking around, but yeah. also like they feel more comfortable with it for the most part. Most of our teachers do. But I think one place where we still have a sticking point is assessing. And I think we're still, you know, we're having a lot of conversations about that right now of like, well, how does this curriculum align to our state assessment, which we didn't give last year's and <laughs> we have a new one coming. So it's all a little up in the air. Uh, yeah. But generally, you know, how does it align and how do we assess to make sure they are ready for that test. And um, there's, you know, talks of, you know, the, how we used to ass- assess reading versus how we should. And there's just a lot of conversation about it. So I, you wrote an amazing article <laughs> called reading assessments need an upgrade um, that I go back to often. So I, I would love to just um, talk with you about that a bit. Yeah. Um, 
one of the things I'm really worried about is that we're not going to be able to capture the momentum that's actually taking place through high quality materials implementation. Um, and that's where I guess the impetus for this particular article came from. You know, you think about a traditional reading assessment, it's a cold read, which for those listening that don't necessarily know what that is, it's, it's on a text or a topic you're not familiar with. You haven't seen it before. You haven't dedicated time to it. And I think what we know from a broad base of research is that when you give students a cold read assessment, uh, you're essentially, all you're doing is labeling kids based on their income levels. Uh, you're labeling their background knowledge that they bring to that cold read assessment from their home life and most of the time, the primary factor in determining the amount of background knowledge they have, if the school's not building it, is the income level of their parents. And so if we're not thinking about reading assessments in a different way, as we're implementing new materials, I don't know if we're going to accurately capture some of the gains that are taking place. And I'm afraid if we don't do that, schools and districts are going to throw their hands up and say, well, it's not working out like we thought it would because look, we're still getting the same or similar results. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah, I agree with you completely. I think that's exactly what, you know, we're seeing. We have questions of, well, they do so much better on the wit and wisdom assessments than they're doing yep. on our state tests. And we're like, yeah, because yeah. we're building their knowledge. We're building their vocabulary. That makes a lot of sense. And then, and then we had the question of, so then if it doesn't translate to the state test, well, then why are we doing it? Yeah. And that's where I get like that. <laughs> yeah. Punch in the and then day. it seems like folks <laughs> are reverting back to like that skill-based approach or the test prep approach or... Um, actually in preparation for today, one of the things that I would love to hear you, your thoughts on Jared are, is the term priority standards. Mm -hmm. Um, I just think, you know, in not getting quick results, folks then revert back to old practices. And I like to think like, I always think like in analogies, right? So I think in like the health and fitness world, you know, oftentimes the same things happen when folks are trying to change their, their eating habits or their exercising habits. Like if you don't get that quick result, then you kind of revert back to your old practice. And it does, you know, really anything worthwhile takes time. And to see that on the quote assessment, whether that be that you could run three miles or, you know, um, eat, make healthy choices for a week's worth of time or whatever it might be um, or implement a high quality curriculum for a school year. Like it takes a, a long time and, and to see that result um, when, especially when we're thinking about children, um, I think takes, takes a lot of time in the, in the assessment, it's not going to be immediate. So um, t can you talk a little bit about the, the ter those terms that we kind of just threw out like priority standards and um, you know, why we're not seeing, seeing that translate and, and things like that? Yeah. Um, you know, when I was a history teacher, I'm talking about priority standards, I knew that roughly 45% of the U.S. history test in Tennessee was going to come from World War II. So I'd spend a lot of time teaching about World War II, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I knew that less than 7% was going to come from the Vietnam War. So as a teacher, you're prioritizing time. Like, what are you going to do? I think our reading teachers, uh, you know, that used to be a pathway to success on reading tests. Um, when we're talking about isolating skills and trying to assess skills specifically, 
they would know exactly what those questions would look like on an old assessment, not necessarily an assessment that's aligned to new like college career ready standards, common core standards, whatever you're allowed to call them in your particular state. <laughs> um, but it just doesn't work. I mean, we, we know it just doesn't work that way. And, you know, you have things like the baseball study that tell you like the kids that we would normally put in a group and say, these are good readers. Yeah. Like they probably perform better than quote unquote students that aren't good readers on these traditional sort of skill-based reading assessment, but it doesn't actually have anything to do with reading skills. It has, you know, everything to do with that knowledge they're bringing to it. And so that's why I think, um, you know, the baseball studies are really foundational place for people to start because they see the outcomes of that study. The kids who knew a lot about baseball were able to navigate the questions and the ones who didn't weren't regardless of their quote unquote reading skills. And so, Mm -hmm. um, I just, I just think that really has to impact how we think about reading assessments and what we're asking students to answer questions about. If we spend, for example, you know, in fifth grade, um, EL education, if we spend nine weeks reading Esperanza Rising and talking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and then students take a reading test and the passages are about frogs, well, where's the, you know, where's the connection? Where's the translation? Like, I'm not allowing them to use that knowledge base to answer questions. And I think that then leads to some of those stagnant scores that we talk about. But if by luck of the draw, that reading test happened to be about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, (laughs) they're going to blow it out of the water. Um, Mm -hmm. And then you'd have people on the back end, like, what happened? Why did they do so much better on this? Well, it's because of the knowledge base. And so that article I wrote um, is really just maybe pushing thinking, like, why would we not assess kids (laughs) on topics and texts that they've read? They don't have to be hot reads, like things that they've read or studied before. But at least if we did warm reads where there were related topics and they Mm -hmm. could use that background knowledge, I think we'd know a lot more about what kids are learning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I always, I think like if you ask any adult, uh, we're going to learn about this and we're going to do this, but then we're going to totally test you on something different. Like you adults would freak out. They, yeah. you know, they would throw a fit and it would be like an upheaval. There's no sure. way, but we do it to kids and they're yeah. like our most precious possessions in this world, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't understand the disconnect. Like when you go to college and you take um, you know, a biology class, your test is going to have the things that you study <laughs> in biology class. Yeah. yeah. But in reading, it's like we're sending kids into a biology class and then giving them a math test. Like we're not assessing them on the things that they learned. And so we're not capturing the gains that are actually taking place. Yeah. That's so interesting. Cause I even, like I've pushed two of, you know, our state test at least is, you know, has standards for reading and history and social studies and science. And, but even that, like, I mean, still the topics could be anything. <laughs> it might not relate to those topics either. It, <laughs> so it, yeah, it's still just a shot in the dark of what they might be reading about. And these questions came up, you know, in our district. So for example, we had like a 5% increase in reading proficiency after our first year of, uh, implementation in third grade. And so 
on the one hand, 5%, you know, that's a nice little move of the needle. But on the other hand, it's just 5%. And so mm-hmm. it would get questions like, well, we're doing this curriculum. I'm like, why aren't the test scores going up a lot more? And I'm like, it doesn't, we're, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> like, we're not actually testing them on the things they're reading in this curriculum. They're taking this traditional reading assessment. And then people would have a hard time understanding why that was the case. So, yeah. I always wonder why there's um, like such a, I guess it is a foundational understanding, like the, this understanding that, that you're speaking of, um, that we're talking about, of, you know, essentially reading and assessing, aligning, it's, it's not novelty. And, and the, the shift to high quality curriculum doesn't seem to be something that every district is doing. But I think like as, we, as they learn more, folks are starting to do that. Why do you think that there's like a mismatch and why do you think that district leaders um, per se, right? So I'm, I'm just throwing out district leaders as an example. Like, why do you think that there's a lack of understanding about this concept in, in particular? Yeah. Well, I think first, you know, a lot of district leaders like myself come through the ranks and we don't have like deep background in literacy. Um, I mean, I, I was a history major. I, I think I had one reading course in my undergraduate, um, you know, course of study. And so everything is pedagogy focused, strategy focused. You walk into classrooms, do you see kids participating? Are they being compliant? You don't walk in and immediately start to assess, uh, is the teacher actually teaching grade level content with grade level complex text? And I think that's a big assumption and a big mistake that a lot of leaders make when they walk into rooms. You just assume that the fourth grade reading teacher is teaching fourth grade reading. You don't actually analyze the materials they're using to determine if that's the case. So I think that's number one, like in places where materials haven't taken root and aren't gaining momentum. I think there's an assumption that's made. Uh, And then there's also a lean towards like, teacher autonomy, which is a phrase that I think gets misused somewhat, but leaders, because they don't have that background, are then hesitant to ask teachers to do something different because they think, well, what do I know? Like, I don't have, you know, all this background in curriculum development. So I think that's one, one big thing. And then if you're not able to get there, you're probably not able to connect the dot to the assessment component too and think, well, you know, Knowledge matters. Knowledge is the thing driving reading comprehension. So if we want to capture the new knowledge that's being built, we need to make sure that the assessments mirror the texts and topics that that we've studied. So I think it's just a lot that goes into it. Yeah, that's a great point about the um, the undergrad. I yeah. think maybe my view was a little different because in my experience, I guess so. Then that impacted my perspective you know, I was an elementary and English minors or elementary major English minor. So I had all of that uh, equipped going into it. And then when I got my admin, I really saw how all of that, those pieces fit together. Um, but for folks who are coming from, you know, different spaces and that they may not have had that same experience and, and that, that hugely affects, you know, your perspective affects everything. Um, yeah. So we know that Louisiana is doing this though, that Louisiana is making an assessment that essentially matches what they're teaching. Um, do you know anything about that that you, you want to share? <laughs> well, you know, I don't have any insider info. I, I, think, <laughs> I think that 
there's an important lesson that can be learned about why Louisiana is even in a place to do this. So, you know, six or seven years ago, uh, their leadership and the department of, in the department of ed really prioritized curriculum, high quality curriculum across the state at a time when most other states, Tennessee included, were focused on standards trainings and changing assessment. And so Louisiana really jumped out in front and has a huge percentage of districts that are using the same curriculum. So as a state now, they're in a place to actually say, we're gonna assess these topics or these texts because they have such a large percentage of schools that are actually teaching those as part of the curriculum. And there's very few, if any other states that I think that can even come close to that level of uniformity right now. And so Louisiana is just in a unique place to, uh, to leverage that. Yeah, that's a great point. And the fact that they went statewide with it is huge because getting the DOE, you know, in order to really be that, that voice that is spread throughout, I think, I mean, I think personally that's made a a big impact there. Um, You know, I, I worked, I guess maybe, seven years ago, I've worked at the State Department of Education in Maryland. And I think that that was a huge challenge. Um, you know, I was a, a specialist, so I didn't really have the clout to make decisions per se. Um, but I could definitely voice what I thought. Um, but we did get to travel the state and and see, you know, what was happening in different districts. And it varied so widely um, that that definitely was a lesson that I took with me as I moved into then working for Baltimore City. And the draw in working for Baltimore City was that I felt like they were really on like the edge of this, you know, adopting high quality curriculum, doing all of this good stuff. Like I, I felt that in what they were doing there. Um, and so that drew me in. Um, and I, I think there were other places in the state though that were really still had not even revised curriculum to align with common core standards. And so it was just really interesting to see the, the variations within you know, driving a couple hours, which sure. is wild. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the biggest things I took away from my time at Instruction Partners because we were at the time of its founding working mostly in Florida and then in Tennessee. But to go visit, you know, a district in Florida and then to come back and visit a district in middle or east Tennessee and they're struggling with the same thing. And it's because they don't have, you know, the same high quality materials in place just a real light bulb moment. Uh, and I think that we're still at a place where we're struggling to get a critical mass of districts to, uh, to sort of dive in and take on that challenge. Yeah. Well, I, want, I want everybody to dive in. A little. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just wanted to like, I think we've said all these points already, but I just want to like put a final point on it. I'm thinking of someone, like if someone was to take like a different approach to what we just talked about, or a different way of looking at it. If they, if they hear us saying things like, this new high quality curriculum is not preparing our students for the state assessments, then I, I could see the argument of, well, then the curriculum's wrong, right? And I just wanna like put a final point on that of like why we're saying that we should stick with this curriculum, even if it might not prepare for those state assessments. Yeah. So I, I think I have a way to explain this, but you know, <laughs> you'll be the judge and the people listening will be the judge. Here's the way I would present this to our principals. If, if a child walked by your school and let's say they're in fifth grade and they 
could quote unquote read on a fifth grade level, which there's a lot of things that goes into, you know, what that actually means. But let's say they were able to pass the fifth grade assessment. There would be some very specific things that we would know about that child uh, that enabled them to pass that assessment. Uh, we would know that they had some solid foundational skills, some decoding skills that enable them to break down words and put them back together. And we would know that they had a knowledge base or enough background about the text on that test that allowed them to read and comprehend and make sense of the vocabulary that was contained. We would know those things about that child unless they just guessed and got really lucky. <laughs> um, the reason why we have to focus on the curriculum and making sure it's right and then aligning the assessment to that is because we're trying to, in, in a lot of kids, build knowledge through the curriculum that they're not getting in other places. And that's what makes this an equity conversation, truthfully. There's some kids that come to school and like the family life that they have, the resources they have at home enables them to build this knowledge outside of school that brings them to school with enough knowledge to make sense of whatever text you put in front of them. Not every kid has that. Uh, and so how does the school use curriculum to build that same background that puts them on the same playing field as the child that comes with everything. And so that's why curriculum is such a huge part of this conversation. And then when we get to the assessment piece, we, we know that if we build enough background knowledge in students, it doesn't matter what we ask them to read about. They're gonna be able to do well, just like that kid that walked by. Um, but it takes several years to get to that point, probably five, six, seven years, honestly, to get to that yeah. point. And yeah. so, that's why like the curriculum has to drive the assessment conversation and not, not the other way around. Yeah. It's funny. Cause it reminds me the whole time you were explaining that. And I think it was done beautifully and our listeners will love that explanation. Um, like it's not cheating. This is yeah. like, this is not cheating. When you go to college and you get a syllabus, you know what to expect in the course and what knowledge you're going to gain. And then you expect that the assessment at the end where you get your blue book, I don't know if you still have those or if I'm just dating myself, but when you get your blue book and you write your response to the couple questions and your essays, they're about what you've learned that quarter yep. <laughs> or semester. Yeah. Um, you know, so to kind of like, Melissa, I love that question. That was an incredible question to ask. Um, but, but that it's not cheating, that, that we are, you know, the assessments shouldn't drive the curriculum because we are at a place in time where the curriculum is such high quality. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think that the assessments are there yet. So no. how can the assessments be built to be high quality? Like, I would love to be like, this is a high quality assessment. Like, we're going to podcast and share a high quality assessment. Like, Louisiana, hurry up, you know, so we can do that. Um, because that would just really help support this whole shift to high quality curriculum because unfortunately in the world we live in the assessment is driving what's yeah. being taught and so I do think like the more that assessment can support what we're teaching kiddos then we'll see a, a, a faster a, a bigger shift in more massive shift in districts you know adopting it and then really like having the buy-in a little bit more so um than now like now sometimes it kind of feels like an uphill struggle at first but um you know most folks do see the benefit of it but if the assessments were driving that we know how much clout they hold so that would yeah. be pretty cool one day <laughs> yeah i mean to your point about 
uh, the use of text in assessments. I was having a conversation with a principal one time. We had gone in and out of classrooms, and I was just trying to get him to really wrap his arms around the fact that the text should always be out and in use in classrooms. And so his question was, well, what if, what if they're taking a test? And I was like, the text should be out. <laughs> and he said, well, what if, you know, they can answer, I mean, wouldn't they just be able to find the answer straight out of the text? And I said, if they're able to put their finger on it in the text and that's the answer, then Terrible you're, asking test. you're asking the wrong questions. Yeah. So um, <laughs> how can we think about, you know, integrating it in a way where they're using it, right? Like when you write a dissertation, you don't like read all the sources and then put them up and write the dissertation. Like yeah. you're shuffling. You analyze them. <laughs> and so that's where we want to get to. Yeah. So good. I love that. That was super helpful. <laughs> so I know we've been talking uh, a lot about that, the article that you wrote, Reading Assessments Need an Upgrade, and we'll definitely link that in the show notes. Um, but I personally, Melissa, I know I've probably personally quoted you like five times, Jared. I feel like Melissa has quoted you as well. <laughs> um, in a previous Twitter uh, post, you had said that knowledge travels well. And I think you had posted it at the beginning of the quarantine. Um, and I saw this through myself and my daughter and how she accessed like knowledge building curricula throughout this time. And so I told your quote hit home when she was like so eager to learn more about the topics that she was learning about. And um, it was hilarious because I didn't even, she didn't realize that she was learning about science. Like she was learning about the digestive system and good nutrition. And the other day she, she said to me, I hate science. I hate (laughs) learning about science in school unless you get to like explode things. And I said, well, like you, you learned everything that you learned in, in wit and wisdom when you, you did knowledge on the go, like that was science stuff. And she had no idea. And she goes, well, I liked that, but I mean, I don't, I don't like science at school. And I was like (laughs) cracking up. I'm like, oh my gosh, you totally, she liked it because it was like curiosity driven and, you know, question driven and and knowledge driven. And it was so exciting to her, but she never realized it was science. So I say that to say, I've quoted you a hundred times, knowledge travels well. Um, Can you explain what you meant by this? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, We have to go back and like wrap our arms around knowledge drives reading comprehension, right? So if I know everything there is to know about rainforests, and you give me a text to read about the rainforest, whether or not I've read it before, I'm going to be able to answer the questions and do pretty well, right? Because I know a lot about the rainforest. But if I know a lot about the rainforest and you give me something to read on polar bears, like I'm probably not going to do as well because I don't know everything about polar bears. I know everything about the rainforest. So the more we can do to build a broad base of knowledge in kids, on specific topics, but across a variety of domains and fields, they're gonna be so much more likely to encounter lots of things that they can uh, decipher and make sense of. And so I think that's really at the heart of that phrase because no matter where kids are learning, at school, at home, at the library, uh, in the parking lot, wherever they can get Wi-Fi, um, which I mean, unfortunately is a reality right now with the situation we're in. Um, 
that knowledge travels well because it's going to help them regardless of the context, regardless of the text that they're reading. And like you said, it's just more interesting, right? Like <laughs> it's more likely that they're going to be engaged in those very specific high interest topics uh, because it's not something they would traditionally pick off the shelf if it were up to them. But it's, it's what's going to set them up for success uh, regardless of the context of their learning or the assessment that they're taking place. Yeah. And we talked a lot about how, how parents can really help with that too. You know, that it's, I, as a parent myself, less daunting than if you had me teach like whatever the reading skill might be. I, I might not know how to do that, but I, I know I could just talk to them about rainforests. Yeah. <laughs> like we could just learn about it together. Yeah. I mean, I mean yeah. Yeah. something that parents do all the time is read to their kids and talk mm-hmm. to kids about what they read. And so that was one of the thoughts that we had at the beginning of the pandemic was, well, if parents would just take, you know, for example, like their core knowledge curriculum, if they would just take those three or four pages of the read aloud and read that with their child every day. And there's questions built in that they can ask. And it talks about specific vocabulary words. Like parents can do that at home. Like that is something that they would be much more comfortable with than like you said, you know, maybe uh, something on a specific, you know, foundational skill or finding the main idea or author's purpose or something like that. Yeah. And I always think about too, like as parents are reading, like if it is something, cause this happens, like, especially, you know, as you get into the older grades, like seventh grade, eighth grade, as you're learning about topics that you're like, I, I really don't know, like there, thank goodness for Google. Like, I wonder what parents did before you could ask, um, Google or Alexa. I know. You couldn't couldn't get an immediate answer. It was not immediate. You didn't know how to pronounce that word immediately. So I feel like um, Google and and Siri and Alexa and everybody's everybody's best friend as we're embarking on this knowledge journey because you, you know, there were so many questions that Presley had about the digestive system that, (laughs) you know, I'm not, I'm not science, science sciencey. I didn't know those answers. Um, but you know, it was, it's fun to explore together is my point. And so that made it like a curious, um, seeking, you know, we were learning together and she's like, well, you don't know either. And then she would find the answer and feel really proud. So it's an opportunity for families to connect and around things that are easy to connect about. You know, it's, again, it's not like you're finding the uh, main idea of the article, which, um, possibly may not even be there. You know? <laughs> We've yeah. talked about that tweet too. <laughs> uh, so as we, as we continue this conversation about, you know, virtual learning, um, Jared, what do you think are considerations for fall? Like what, what are some big things to, to remember, to consider, to think about? Yeah. I mean, I think we have to acknowledge number one, that there's probably not a perfect plan that exists um, in our, people in school and district leadership roles right now and, and teachers are in the classroom and it's just an unprecedented situation. And so I think we have to be sure and dole out a lot of grace right now because people are trying to figure things out. And, you know, I saw something the other day, it's like, we're all first year teachers now. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of truth. In that. Um, but I think there's some things that you can do to set yourself up for success. Uh, number one, if you're a district and you're not using high quality materials, I have no idea how you organize yourself right now. If teachers are going on their own, trying to figure out what to teach, 
I just not sure how that could be successful. So do yourself a favor. And even if you haven't implemented before, now is a great time to find an open source, high quality curricula, go to Ed Reports and find it, go to Louisiana Believes and find it uh, and put it in your teacher's hands so that you're all working from the same playbook. That's number one. Uh, I think number two is limit the number of platforms that you're asking families to engage with. So, you know, I have a friend right now, he has a first grader and I think she has six different logins that she has to use for her school day. Oh, man. oh gosh. Uh, yeah. Again, that's a six-year-old, right? Five-year-old, six-year-old. Yeah. yeah. So again, <laughs> that teacher put that together the best they could. Um, but I think if the district can sort of get the reins on it and say, let's limit to like one Google drive login or one, you know, some other, you know, blackboard or some other platform where you're just one thing that you're logging into and how's everything there. I think that's really important as well. And then the third thing is I think even though it's really cool to jump on zoom and do a lot of like live discussion and talking, uh, I don't think that overloading kids with synchronous real time instruction is the best thing. I think we need to limit the amount of synchronous real time instruction we're doing and focus uh, those conversations for feedback. So record a 20, 30 minute lesson and then spend the rest of your day doing 15, 20 minute check-ins with your kids to, to see how well they were, they were able to handle that. So those are just my, you know, two or three cents about uh, <laughs> virtual instruction. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That last one's so good because I mean, we literally just had a training about what wit and wisdom will offer in the fall, which is kind of that, that video that you just talked about, like that input comes from our wit and wisdom instead of the teachers doing, and then the teachers get to have that more meaningful conversation. And I think there was a little bit of hesitation around that of like, Oh, well, you know, the teachers aren't doing the <laughs> like yeah. heavy lift of the lesson. And it was like, no, but they get to do the heavy yeah. lift because someone else did the other part. <laughs> yeah. And it builds that consistency too, right? For step one, like working from the same playbook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'm really nervous because our, the district where uh, press goes to school, they don't have high quality curriculum yet. And um, they, they shared, I got an email as a parent yesterday that said, you know, um, elementary schools will run between the hours of eight and four. And of course I'm like having a mini panic attack (laughs) because I heard through the grapevine that it was going to be something ridiculous, like three hours of synchronous instruction followed up by three hours more of work. And already yeah. I'm like, there's, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't handle that. Like, how, how do we do this? You know, how do I work? How do, how does she, plus, I don't think it's good practice to have kids on the computer for three hours a day, you know? No. Um, but there's, I mean, who knows, right? I'll follow up on that and, and get the real deal and uh, later, but um, yeah, just don't overload the babies. Even if they're in 10th grade, like this is their, this is new for all of us. You know, I know how sure. I feel after a three hour Zoom meeting, which hopefully will never happen, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you have to be realistic. If you think about a kindergartner or a first or even a second grade student's schedule, they're spending, you know, probably 90 minutes in reading and between 60 and 90 minutes in math. If you could just, I mean, if you could do that that. at home, that would be amazing, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's so funny. I keep joking around um, with my fiance. I'm like, 
we were all teachers. There was no way that if the school day was six and a half hours long, you were not teaching for all six and a half hours. Like there's bathroom breaks and lunch and, you know, related arts and hallway walking time. Like, you know, I mean, let's be, you have to be honest about the minute spent. Now, when we were in the classroom and it was reading time or math time or whatever you were, they, you were teaching, they were learning. And, but not for six hours, seven hours a day. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. We will have to keep you, uh, keep you updated. Um, <laughs> but as we, as we kind of bring this to a close, we always ask all of our, our guests to leave our listeners with one piece of advice. So your piece of advice can be really anything um, about assessments, could be um, just about you know, surviving in life right now could be uh, <laughs> about virtual learning. You, you have the gamut. So you coffee, pick, coffee co- oh yeah, coffee, <laughs> your best, your best coffee machine that you found in quarantine. <laughs> yeah. I, I won't share any of my coffee tips because I don't, <laughs> someone out there is going to know more about coffee than me and they're going to send me some corrective action notes. So uh, I, I think a lot about like the way people deal with change uh, and there's a lot of change right now that people are dealing with. And I have like a little saying that I try to use and it's that people want better, but they don't like different. And mm-hmm. you really have to come to terms with those as, as we're going through a lot of these things. So if we're talking about new curriculum or new assessment or making virtual learning work, um, you have to be okay with the different and able to get to the better. And that's hard to, hard to wrap our minds around. I think the best thing that people can do is just focus, like try to do a few things well and to make sure that we're not asking people to run the gamut and do, you know, a hundred different things. Well, so focus, make sure your priorities are speaking to each other and that, you know, the message makes sense and it's okay to let some things go and just know that it might take a different curriculum to accomplish the goal or a different assessment to really capture the progress. And, you know, different oftentimes, you know, leads us to the better that we've been looking for all along. So. I love it. I'm stealing that quote. Get ready. Get ready to hear that one over and over again. (laughs) I feel like I'm always saying mic drop on the podcast. So that's a total mic drop moment. Good job. (laughs) Oh, well, we can't thank you enough. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And oh, you know what? Before we uh, finish, share your Twitter handle um, as, as well as any other information you want to share and share with our listeners that you have a new really fun podcast. Yeah, um, <laughs> so, uh, folks can find me at Jared Miracle on Twitter, uh, and then I think I have a website with the same uh, the same handle. So, but I'm on Twitter all the time, so that's a great place to interact with me. Uh, and then, yeah, a friend of mine, uh, also named Jared Bigham, we started a podcast called Edspective, uh, and it's where we provide some perspectives on different educational topics. Essentially, we try to pick like a big hairy question that uh, is really hard to answer and spend 20, 25 minutes doing our best to answer it. So uh, folks can, can check that out as well. We're only a few episodes in, so we're still getting the wiggles out, uh, but we'll figure it out. And it's just fine. Whether or not anyone listens to it, we have a lot of fun. <laughs> 
supporting yeah. it. So. <laughs> we totally understand that. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we told ourselves too. The, the, we were like, we'll just record. And if we are the only ones who listen and our family members, that's okay. <laughs> My mom is really proud. So. Right? <laughs> yes. Uh, well, we will listen. We will totally listen. And I feel like I should apologize because I think I said your last name incorrectly when I introduced you because I was using my phonics uh, background oh. to make the uh, pronunciation. So I'm sorry that it's Markle. Is that right? Markle? Markle. Miracle. miracle. I said it like miracle. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, I probably didn't even hear it because I'm just used to the mispronunciation. <laughs> so. Well, thank you. All right. Well, tell, uh, you'll have to tell your mom you're on another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You have a good listener, I'm sure. Yes. Send it, we'll send it over to, to her. Uh, well, thank you so much and have, a, have an excellent rest of your day. Yeah. Thank you. Have- <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.